Good evening and welcome to another episode of Slantcast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolf, and I am Slant's publisher and editor. Thanks for joining us. This evening, we're in for a treat. The book launch event for Leaping from the Burning Train, A Poet's Journey of Faith by Jeannie Murray Walker. Before we get started, just a brief word about Slant Books. I've been using these introductory remarks in our recent podcasts as a sort of commonplace book because I keep coming across people from many different backgrounds converging on themes that feel both urgent and central to our mission. While I know it's a little late to be talking about this past summer's blockbuster, Oppenheimer, I recently read a striking short essay in The American Scholar occasioned by that film. In that piece, Mark N. Grant noted that the great nuclear scientist underwent, quote, a pilgrimage from advocate to critic of a technology, a journey shaped by his broad humanistic education in music, literature, and art. Grant concludes his essay by asking a series of timely questions. But where are the Oppenheimers of today who might weigh the social capital of technology from a grounding in arts and culture? Did the titans of today's digital world game out during R&D potential toxic repercussions of their work? Viral disinformation? Deep fakes? The likelihood that aggregating intellectual property would undercut copyrights and the intellectual property rights of individual creators long before AI? That electronic communication would make long letter writing obsolete and short messaging impermanent, crippling the database for the writing of history and biography and potentially obliterating the human record of our times, if only indirectly? That short character messaging and enforced multitasking might permanently injure deep discourse? That if media literacy supplanted traditional literacy, the basest instincts of human beings might be potentiated and search engine algorithms favoring angry images might drive social discord? Were the moguls of Silicon Valley insensitive to these possibilities of their benign Frankensteins because they were not as steeped in arts and letters as Oppenheimer was and lacked the wisdom and perspective therefrom? I really thought it was a striking and moving piece about a public intellectual who, though brilliant as a scientist, was steep in the humanistic tradition. And it also resonates with the phrase that I found recently in an essay by Garth Greenwell, that art is concerned with carrying out, quote, research into the human. That's become the tagline or motto for slant. If you'd like to learn more about how we do research into the human here, we invite you to visit our website, slantbooks.org. Before I introduce our special guest tonight, I'd just like to remind you that if you have questions for Jeannie, please write a note to that effect in the chat. That will give me an idea of who to call upon when the time comes. I can't guarantee that we will have time for everyone to share, but we'll do our best. I will also post a link to Slant the Slant webpage for searching uh, for Leaping from the Burning Train, where you will find several different options for purchasing a copy of the book. Tonight, I am giddy with delight to have this opportunity to celebrate Slant's release of a richly rewarding memoir by one of my oldest and dearest friends and colleagues, Jeannie Murray Walker. Over three decades, I've had the honor to publish Jeannie's essays and poems, to invite her to lead workshops, and to teach in the MFA in creative writing program that I founded, and now to round things off the publication of this terrific memoir. I hope Jeannie will forgive me if I read out her official biography. I know those sometimes come out as maybe a little stilted sounding, but it just feels like the right way to honor both the occasion and her many wonderful achievements. Jeannie Murray Walker is the award-winning author of nine volumes of poetry, including Coming Into History and Helping the Morning, and most recently, 
Pilgrim, You Find the Path by Walking. She has also published a memoir, The Geography of Memory, A Journey Through Alzheimer's, as well as a number of plays which have been performed in theaters across America and in London. Walker is an emerita professor at the University of Delaware, where she taught for 40 years and headed the creative writing concentration. Jeannie directed study abroad courses in London during University of Delaware January winter sessions, teaching British culture and British theater. She also served as a poetry mentor in the Seattle Pacific low residency MFA program for over a decade. And after she retired from Delaware, taught for the Gordon College program in Orvieto, Italy. For over three decades, she has been a frequent speaker at conferences and workshops in places ranging from the Library of Congress to Romania, from Italy to the Texas Hill Country. Jeannie has appeared on PBS television and is frequently interviewed on the radio. She holds a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and is married to E. Daniel Larkin III. They have two children, Molly and Jack, and five grandchildren. You can find Jeannie's papers and letters archived at Wheaton College's Buswell Library and at the University of Delaware's Morris Library. So it is a great honor and delight to ask Jeannie to this event to read from Leaping from the Burning Train and also hopefully to answer your questions and engage with you after her reading. Jeannie? Thank you. Don't ask me very hard questions. I want to say thanks to Greg for his enormous presence in um, the spiritual community um, because he really has created many different ways of approaching humanistic texts. So um, this is just the latest, the um, slant. Tonight I want to read Shakespeare asks, asks to meet my mother, which is um, Shakespeare was somebody I, I really didn't like Shakespeare when I was an undergraduate. I was an undergraduate at Wheaton and I petitioned Dr. Clyde Kilby to let me um, forego <laughs> the requirement for the English major to take a Shakespeare course, which he graciously, he laughed and graciously said, sure, that's fine. I don't mind at all. You'll read Shakespeare sometime. And he was right. And when I read Shakespeare, I was crazy about Shakespeare, as he probably knew anybody would be. So um, when I'm this, this personal essay is really about the way my mother, years before I read Shakespeare, was not able to re read Shakespeare. She was a widow. She was desperately trying to make enough money to support three children. And she was needing to go back to school in order to get an undergraduate degree. She was a nurse and she was very smart and she was extremely capable, but she did not have her undergraduate degree. So she had to take a, a Shakespeare course. It's 103 degrees in Lincoln, Nebraska. And my mother is sitting at the kitchen table, twisting the elastic steel armband of my father's big watch around her wrist. She is paging through a book as massive as the New York telephone directory. It contains all of Shakespeare's plays. The letters are the size of midges written on paper so thin you see print from the other side as you read. She gets up for a drink of water. She washes out a few dishes. She combs her foamy black curls. She checks to see whether the mailman has delivered anything interesting. She stops by my chair to mention that I might wanna go out and weed the garden. She sits down to study the big book. A dog barks outside and she immediately jumps up to look out the window. 
She goes back to Shakespeare for a minute and turns two or three pages. This is so dumb, she says. She twists a black curl around her index finger. It's about a handkerchief. My mother is trying to support three children on the salary of a nurse, which is minuscule and gnawed down every year by inflation. Before she can get a raise, the State Department of Education requires that she pass a Shakespeare course. Why Shakespeare? I don't know, but she has no time to indulge in culture. It is clear that without a raise, she will no longer be able to support us. I have just turned th 13 and I can feel my mother's attention. It's like a big basket that holds my concerns easily with plenty of space left over. She's a widow, but she's not a victim. She's so smart that the principal of the junior high where she is a school nurse phones our house after school to ask her advice. She is the one who decides whether we can keep one more stray dog and she knows what to do about bullies. She laughs and gossips like a teenager on the phone with her girlfriends. She can cook a mean spaghetti sauce and she's pretty. Everyone, as far as I know, admires her. So I assume my mother is right about Shakespeare. That summer, the running jokes in our family go like this. Question, how many Shakespeare characters does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, they used candles. If Shakespeare's plays are that stupid, I think, why does he have such a big reputation? But, oh well, I'm beginning to discover the adult world can be bizarre. We lock our ridicule of Shakespeare into the vault of family secrets. Every morning, my mother drives off to class at Nebraska Wesleyan in her ancient, chalky, blue Chevy. She chugs back home in the stunning heat sets up an electric fan and tries to settle down to Shakespeare at the table. She is as kinesthetic as her own hair, coiled and springing. She prowls the house, <clears throat> waters plants, organizes drawers, washes a dirty window, throws vegetables into a pot for soup. She is in love with the life of the body. When the leaves darken into August, she has not accomplished that mysterious feat, which no one can really explain. She has not changed the little black squiggles on the page into mental images of kings and clowns and lovers. The truth is, my mother cannot read Shakespeare. If she realized that, she must have been alarmed. Much of her vitality and pleasure came from her confidence that she could support us. Maybe she felt like a passenger watching an in-flight TV news channel when the anchor reports an impending plane crash. The flight number is hers. She grows tense and crouchy. The Shakespeare professor she tells us one night at dinner could never operate in the real world of broken legs, severed fingers, and stolen cars. The sort of crises she manages weekly at Irving Junior High School. After all, the poor guy thinks that pretend handkerchief and the love juice in Shakespeare's comedies have the same status as an actual leg broken on an actual trampoline. Shakespeare, my mother points out, isn't going to pay our mortgage or keep our shelves stocked with spaghetti. My mother never understood how well Shakespeare sells or why. I realize that now, but under her influence, I firmly categorize her professor and all other intellectuals like him as ineffectual. I believe my mother and all other intellectuals like him are in, ineffectual. 
I believe them that intellectuals can fu function only because they have secretaries who keep track of their pencils and help them find their cars in the parking lot at night. So my mother's Shakespeare paper comes due. This paper involves not only writing, of course, but reading. And how can she write about plays she hasn't read? God knows she has plenty of imagination, more than enough to invent her own plots and characters. But she is aware that if she made up a plot, she would be found out. She absolutely must pass this course. So she sits down at the kitchen table with blue line notebook paper and a pencil, and she whips up a convection of ornate prose, picking up what she thinks of as flowery style and diction of Shakespeare without divulging anything about what she has read. Her argument spirals around and around. When my mother finishes the paper, she asks me to critique it for her. The year before, critiquing her paper would have been my father's job, but he died in December, and now we are alone and she is trying to support us. The confidence she has placed in me is thrilling. I am just beginning to get a reputation in, in the family as the child who reads. None of the drawbacks that, of that role have manifested themselves yet. With the conviction of an unwashed subversive who feels she needs to defeat the counsels of the washed, I read my mother's paper. I have begun to imagine Shakespeare as a football field where my mother's team is being mauled by the opposing team of her professor. I know who I am pulling for. I am gripped by the spirit of a cheerleader. Hit him again, harder, harder. When I can't follow the argument in my mother's paper, I explain to myself that after all, I'm only 13. A person has to ease into the works of such a big deal author. I point out a few piddling punctuation problems, but then I tell my mother her paper is great, which is what she wants. I know there is something wrong with what I'm doing. I know my mother's paper is impossible to read. I don't quite understand why, and I don't want to know. If I thought about it, I could probably figure it out, but I know that would take lots of time, and I don't feel like working that hard. Do whatever you can get away with, as Flannery O'Connor once said <clears throat> in a different context. <clears throat> My mother's professor awarded her a C on her paper. The threat of welfare passed. She received college credit and a salary increment. Rather than being grateful to him, though, she pointed to her passing grade as evidence of just how inept he was. And I agreed with her. The fact is, now I believe something very different. Maybe reading Shakespeare strengthened her, her professor's insight into character and enlarged his empathy. Shakespeare can do that to a person. Maybe the professor saw my mother as the protagonist of a tragedy. Maybe he gave her points because she was turning in her script into a good play. Trying to please my mother about her Shakespeare paper initiated my descent into duplicity about reading. When I signed off on the paper, I knew I would be celebrated as the kid who had helped her defeat her teacher. My mother acted grateful and proud and she wasn't faking. She took me to get a strawberry ice cream cone. I soaked up her gratitude without feeling responsible for the consequences of the ju judgment I vaguely realized was faulty. And then I forgot it. 
That fall, I became fiercely involved in defending a certain hedge fort on the playground against boys at recess, and I began to practice the violin seriously. I thought little more about my mother's Shakespeare paper for the next 30 years. But the sides were drawn after that. I thought of life as offering two choices, my mother's active world or the corrupting imaginary world of her Shakespeare professor. Ironically, that sum summer, I had begun to devour books. <clears throat> I learned the trick, slipping off the collar of everyday life, following fiction where it beckoned. I read books by Paul Hutchinson about the Sugar Creek gang, which I imagined joining. Failing to notice the gang was made up entirely of boys. But then I failed to notice almost everything. I spun a cocoon of reading against the madness of a world where my father could disappear with no warning. The chair became my habitat. I camped there for whole days at a time, cradling one book after another, books that ignited breathtaking scenarios lit by magic neon lights. Occasionally, nagged by my mother, I would get up from the chair and step into the sweltering Nebraska afternoon to pick beans for dinner. During those years, my mother's creed was my creed, at least officially. She believed that if a person feels grief and horror while watching the fictional Macbeth murder Macduff's children, that person has not stayed sufficiently alert to the demands of real life. That person is caught up in vain imaginings and may be lazy and bound for life's trash heap. I was failing my mother, I realized, because I secretly suffered and triumphed with the characters in books. In public, I defended and sided with her. I didn't want the family to go under. And besides, she had a lot of power. On hot afternoon, she could decide whether or not to take us to the swimming pool. In the reading wars, I was a traitor to my own side. My, mother wasn't, my mother's professor wasn't the main person I betrayed, of course. When Flannery O'Connor said to do whatever you, get away, you can get away with, she went on to say that she usually couldn't get away with much. I violated a human principle so deep that its root, it has its roots in the beginning of time. I betrayed what I knew was true. It affected my relationship with my mother and has ever since. Eventually, I had to reverse myself and openly honor books or I could never have lived a free, happy life. For me, reading is a sacrament. As I write that sentence, I imagine ghostly theologians pulling up in a ring around me, shaking their hoary white locks and muttering objections. But a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And isn't that what language is? In the creation story, God tells Adam and Eve to name the animals and plants. Once they had words, they can make great leaps. They could explain crows and trees. They could radishes and they could articulate what they felt what they imagined about the animals and plants. Because of language, they could embark on the journey of their own lives, learning and remembering and passing on their experience. Without language, it would be hard to tell humans from beasts. In 1950, I stood beside my mother in our kitchen, kitchen holding a worn Dick and Jane reader, sounding out the words, 
knowing I was faking as usual, that is, remembering the story rather than reading it. But then the story took off like a jet from a runway. I read pages and pages beyond anything I remembered. My mother stopped mashing the potatoes, frowned with pleasure, and told me that I had learned to read. I understood that somehow, I had no idea. I was vacuuming the story off the page into myself. I did not merely feel a sense of accomplishment. I felt set apart. It was one of my earliest encounters with grace. I don't know why I didn't bookmark that day in my mind and honor it afterward. Well, I do know, although I felt it deeply, I didn't understand how significant it was. There are no cultural markers for wanting to read, no public celebration, no religious ritual. By the time I was 13, I had forgotten the essential holiness of that moment. I was like a cracked cup. On the one hand, I couldn't stop reading. On the other, I couldn't stop believing that read reading was a dangerous habit. My mother sent mixed messages too. She ridiculed leaders like, readers like her Shakespeare professor, but she urged us to succeed at school. She was smart enough to know that in America, learning re to read well was the way to thrive. However, she didn't expect any of us to like reading. At home, I developed a re reputation for being the reader of the family, which means being a dreamer, someone who can get lost in any fog that happens to roll in. As everyone knows, in a family, a person grows to re resemble her reputation. A grandmother might say, you drive just like your uncle Elder Elmer, or good grief, listen to her, she's getting funny like her father. When you're young, the aunts and uncles who haven't seen you for a while will stand around and make these comments in your presence, as if you were a used piece of furniture or an African violet they're thinking about purchasing. Whatever they say about you makes you think about yourself that way, which in turn pushes you further in that direction. My mother often sent me downstairs to find a jar of canned plums or rhubarb for dessert. When I forgot what she wanted and came up with a jar of pickles, she became eloquent in her annoyance. Mankind could have evolved in the time it's taken you to find that. Go down and get it right. I obediently climbed down and spent another 10 minutes looking around, trying to remember what I was there for. My mother blamed this lack of practicality on too much reading. She worried that I was so ensorcelled that I would not hear the sirens during one of our summer court tornadoes, for example. She might find me wrapped around a street sign. Late at night, she sat on my bed, her face and hands stippled by the waving shadows of trees under the street light, while she pled with me to change. But I couldn't figure out how to change. I had failed my driver's test because the agent said I was too dreamy. I forgot my purse at school. I lost coats and boots. Reading carried me further and further downstream from her, standing on the dock, calling me toward responsible adulthood. My mother might have been right that there was something slightly sick about my secret inarticulate reading. I suffered from a lack of critical distance. Whatever happened to the main character in a book happened to me, and I was helpless to extricate myself or make judgments about what it meant. Later in college, I discovered a second, better, more active kind of reading hauling the glittering jewels from the cave into the sunlight and exclaiming to one another, 
look at this. Isn't this amazing? In high school, we talked mainly about plot, but simply to know that other human beings had read the same story felt like the miracle of the loaves and fishes. This giant, awkward sergeant of a teacher made the Shakespeare play into bread we passed around and ate in class. And I began reading in a different, more self-conscious way. I had a premonition that I might do something useful for my, with my life, however crippled my mother thought I was by my addiction to reading. Nevertheless, I was determined not to study any more Shakespeare than necessary. Even though I majored in an undergraduate English department where Shakespeare was a requirement, I successfully petitioned to avoid my mother's old nemesis. It was the Jesuits in graduate school who finally forced me to read Shakespeare for my master's degree. And it was watch watching Professor Stan Claves leap from the floor to the top of his desk in his virtuoso performance of Henry V that finally converted me to Shakespeare. I've lived for periods of time in London and seen many of his plays at the Globe where he may have acted. I've spent days at Stratford where as a boy, he ran the earth into his feet. I can picture him strolling around the town market after he dropped out of school as it teemed with horses and herbs and vegetables and flowers. He must have studied people, bewitched by their charm and their evil. He probably helped in his father's tanning business out behind his parents' half-timbered house. The day would dawn bright and cool in the summer, the stink of lye floating on the air. Quick as a wink, he had a wife and three babies. He was probably desperate for money. Maybe he wrote couplets to sell for two pence with the gloves. At the age of 21, standing outside his house in Stratford, listening to the three babies wailing, he must have glanced down the road toward London. He was looking for a way to become Shakespeare. Sometimes I think I understand Shakespeare better than I understand my mother. My mother never actually read anything but the Bible. Oh, sure, a cake mix box, a cake mix box maybe, and our report cards and Mother's Day cards, but she didn't read books. She had absolutely no interest in them. How could she read and understand the King James Bible every day on the one hand, and yet never pick up any other book? In fact, no one in our church read, no one talked about reading. It occurs to me now that one married couple, young married couple read for pleasure, books about spirituality published by religious presses. My mother occasionally bought those, but she didn't read them. She put them on our coffee table. Perhaps not reading is precisely what allowed my mother to, to remain in our church. It was, in, it was over reading, after all, that I left my fundamentalist people. It is a great irony that nevertheless, my mother was the one who taught me to love stories her own and my father's, and those of her parents. With the verve and style of a fine soccer player dribbling and pace, passing the ball down the field, she narrated the old tales. The past defines us, as my fundamental, fun, fundamentalist people argued. It is the story of God dealing with his people. Remember it, write it in the tablets of our children's hearts, the story of Abraham's faith, the story of my mother's parents ne nearly lo losing their farm to hail.
the story of how one winter midnight, just after my par parents were married, they seized their playing cards, carried them down to the furnace in the basement, hurled them in and watched them burn. They felt called to a life apart from the popular drinking, dancing, card playing group in Parker's Prairie, Minnesota, where they lived. My cagey mother aimed her stories directly at me. That's because I was the child who asked to hear them. I might read myself into ruin, yes, possibly, but my mother must have understood that if I didn't, I was the child most likely to ha hand down the legacy of the past. She fretted over my brother. She loaded her practical concerns on my sister and she handed me her stories more frequently and with more urgency as she recognized what I was becoming. At 14, she drove her brothers and sisters to school in a Model A. At 16, she was the lone teacher for 32 kids in a one-room schoolhouse. By the age of 20, she was staffing a hospital ER alone during the night shift. One night, a couple of cops came in with a man's arm wrapped in a bloody army, army blanket. They thrusted at her and announced, the body's coming later. In surgery, she was the one who managed the eminent physicians, handing them instruments. They would swear and fling the instruments across the room and she would have to calm them down. She was the recipient of half a dozen marriage proposals, most of them from doctors. She spent half a day stuck in an Otis elevator with a dead body. She watched as her parents' soybean crop got wiped out by hailstorms. She was chased and almost torn to shreds by a wild bull. When she worked as a nurse at St. Elizabeth's, she pulled the dead fetuses out of trash bins, wrapped them in diapers, brought them home, and buried them in our backyard under signs bearing their last names. As a school nurse at Irving Junior High to hear her tell it, she regularly threw herself onto the bodies of students and teachers to stop geysers of blood from shooting out of wounds. It was her coaxing that persuaded an unhappy junior high math teacher to come down from the far edge of the school roof where the woman was munching a piece of cheese and contemplating how far it would be to the ground. The subject of reading rose like Mount Everest between my mother and me. It was so big we couldn't even talk about it. I was Darth Vader and she was Luke Skywalker or maybe it was the other way around. I wanted her to read. I didn't care much what she read. <clears throat> Cartoons, coffee table books, our daily bread, romance novels, I bought them all for her. She politely thanked me and avoided opening them. I gave her copies of each of my books as I published them. She proudly displayed each of them on the, her coffee table, still packaged in their original cellophane. At the age of 89, she told me that she'd headed up to here with assisted living. The eggs were watery. Her home health care worker was not only lazy, but possibly not refined enough. And the raffles and Hawaiian luau's arranged by Mary Frances weren't fun anymore. Okay, I said to her, what would make you really happy? My car, she snapped. <clears throat> Before my mother gave up her Saturn, she, lost th she got lost three times. She had to stop at a Rita's water ice stand <clears throat> and hitch a ride home with a male stranger who unbelievably turned out not to be an axe murderer 
but the Gabriel, but the angel Gabriel disguised it as a middle-aged Dallas businessman. Before that, she hit a car while turning left in a no left turn lane. <clears throat> oh, mom, I said, you don't want to drive. Think of the trouble dealing with the insurance, <clears throat> dealing with the insurance company, taking the car for service, comforting parents of the children you kill. She cast me a lacer lacerating look. What do you know about it? When you get to be 89, you'll want your car back too. She knew what she was doing. It's terrifying to imagine being 89, but I couldn't make this decision out of terror over my own impending old age. My mother simply could not have her car back. <clears throat> the last time I picked up my mother at the Philadelphia airport, that is the last time she was capable of flying to visit us, and was when I realized she was King Lear and I was about to become his worst daughter, Goneril. <clears throat> her memory and her health had been shaky for years. On this trip, she misplaced several carry-on bags. We slogged around the airport trying to recover them, filling out forms, filing documents, speaking politely to clerks. And then she remembered, oh, she hadn't carried those bags onto the plane in the first place. We laughed about it. Thank you, darling, for coming to pick me up she said, driving all the way from Dallas. I said, no, you came from Dallas, remember? She, who once could locate herself within the space of a napkin ring, squinted, thought about it, and changed the subject. With self-pity, I thought, now I'm the mother and she's the child. It was summer. We drove by a roadside fruit stand, the kind of stand that is boarded up all winter. It was manned by suntan kids. I gave myself orders. Keep your heart open for business. Do not tack plywood over the window. Do not put up a sign saying closed. You'll get better at this. You will have plenty of practice. Your mother is not going to recover. What she has is old age. I knew this would be her last plane trip. The fact would devastate her because all her life she was so active. I saw that she needed reading the way a sick person needs medicine. How about stopping at borders? I asked her casually. Not on your life, she said. I'm not ruining my eyes. That was the last time I tried to talk her into reading. I will never quite recover from the irony that it was she who started me down the road that took me so far away from her. Sometimes I imagine once we're all in heaven and after I've asked my father a lot of questions and he's given me the best answers he's got, I will go over to the booth where Shakespeare is sitting, signing his folios and answering questions. There will be a long line. I'll stand there gossiping a little in the warm breeze with other readers who adore the bard. When I get to the front of the line, Shakespeare look, will look up at me and say, hmm, I hear your mother's got some good stories. How about an introduction? He'll get up and we'll go find her. The three of us will swap stories. My mother will stick around, not because she needs a bigger paycheck to support her children, 
but because she finds out that she really likes the man. Wonderful. Jeannie, thank you. Thank you so much. What a beautiful piece. You've gotten a number of beautiful well wishes here in the chat bar. No one's yet uh, volunteered to ask a question, but uh, I wanted to ask you how, as a poet, you ap approach prose. Is it something you felt natural to, or was it was it difficult for you to make the transition to to working in prose? I think it was difficult, but not as difficult as maybe I thought it was going to be. I, first of all, I wanted to do it because there are certain things, you know, that just don't work in the form of poetry. And it's really important in poetry, in my opinion, to um, have some kind of cadence. I don't mean strict meter, but I mean some kind of rhythm. And it's really important to have word sounds that strike one another um they, it doesn't have to be rhyme but that really is something that you're always working towards these formal requirements of poetry and i wanted to free be free from that for a little while so i could do narrative um and it took a while i had to read a lot i really read a lot of prose um which which I love. I, lo I love all the forms. Um, so I think because I had read it, and poetry is not the only thing I had read, it it wasn't it wasn't so hard for me to start. And you know, then editors, once I started writing in prose, editors asked me to write essays for them. So um Many of the essays in this book I wrote for some journal or another. So I got a lot of practice writing in, in prose and I and I love it. Yeah, I know you you rightly point out that many of these chapters were were essays, and yet when we went back over them to look at them, uh, almost all of them seem to fit, you know, into a narrative of your life. I mean, truly, like you covered so many different time periods from from your life so i guess you you wrote a book without realizing it even in these individual essays that you were doing yeah absolutely when you do the kind of writing that that i'm used to doing the editors don't really tell you what to write about they just ask you for one form or another and sometimes they don't even ask that but um you know you just naturally i think gravitate towards an arc if you're writing and when, I mean, Greg is a, um, Greg is a brilliant editor. And one of the things he did for me was to reshuffle these essays in an order that made them a natural arc for which I am deeply grateful. Well, shucks. You know, the other thing about the book, of course, it's, it doesn't come out so much, although it does peek out a little bit from this particular chapter is the way that you treat this larger journey from a childhood immersed in fundamentalism and uh, and how literature and poetry and metaphor were kind of the thread that you followed out of that world. But this chapter, like the rest, is a really good example of how you, you managed to to write about that in ways that are not angry or resentful, but in fact, kind of cherishing in a way, um, even though there's a poignancy to, to kind of having to leave, like the poignancy of, of loving a mother and yet going away from her in a way. Um, so I'm just curious because, I mean, you know, we live in an, a moment where a lot of people take this opportunity to criticize that culture you know from a point of i would say you know overly high moral ground um in fact almost at at times sneering um how did you ever struggle with that or was this always a, a gentler experience for you well i think what happened to me was i um 
felt like I needed to go to a different sort of church. Um, I did not, uh, you know, change my major commitment, which is really to Christianity. I just see that there are a lot of different formats for that. And I have to be grateful, I think, for the people who really, when I was a kid in church, they were very kind, um, the people in the fundamentalist church that I went to. And I still love them, you know? So it, I, it never occurred to me to be um, rough with them or cruel or difficult because um, I was part of that. Yeah. And I, I was loved there. And I think in some ways the community there was stronger than it is in, in the church that we belong to now. And the church that we belong to now, <clears throat> which is Episcopalian, um, the deacon says at the end of every service, now our worship is over and our service has begun. And she turns everybody in the congregation towards the outside world, um, towards work that needs to be done, kindness and love and compromise. And God knows we need that more now than we ever have, or maybe at least as much. So, you know, we've been getting some questions too in the from other people in the in the chat box and I can't remember what they are. Oh, don't worry. I mean, many of them are, are well wishes and congratulations. Our, our dearly beloved friend Janine does say that to talk a little bit about the title of the book, which I guess in a sense, the title does imply that there was a burning train to leap from. Uh, but again, the paradox of the book is that you're not cursing the train. It just wasn't, I'll train you could ride to the to the destination. Yeah, it it uh, Janine it the title comes from the one of the essays, which is called "Leaping from the Burning Train." It's a you know it's it's an experience that I didn't have. I didn't actually leap from a burning train, but one of my friends told me about doing it. It's one of those stories which is like a friend tells a friend and a friend tells the other friend. And, you know, you, there it's almost like folklore. Anyway, one of the stories in the book is about leaping from a burning train. You know, I, Jeannie, yeah, I mean, I, I think in a strange way, hearing, I mean, though I've, I've read this essay now several times in the process of, of editing the book, it just really leaped, leapt out to me this time that in a way your mother was kind of a poet without really realizing it herself in that she she insisted she wanted to be grounded in the concrete in the tactile in the body as you say right and there was also a no-nonsense aspect to her which I think you bring to your poetry right a kind of refusal of sentimentality right no gush no you know, falling upon the thorns of life. I mean, I see your, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I see your mom in you, however big the literary gap might've been. I think that's right, Greg. Absolutely. I think that's right. And in that sense, I think, you know, my mother bequeathed me something quite important. As we know, um, it was the writers at the turn of the century, the last century, I mean, early in the 1900s, who insisted on concrete poetry, um, sometimes to the point where it was impossible to really understand what they meant. But um, it turned out my mother's interest in the concrete physical world was something that was helpful to me as a poet. I think Jill had a question too. And I can't remember what it was. It flashed. I'm I'm not seeing the whole chat chat box here. <laughs> no worries. Uh she says, I love this genie, such beauty in the reading and the prose. Oh, thank you. 
Any other questions? Well, I think we have one of those situations where people are sated, you know, they're, they're absolutely full and just in that contemplative moment. Oh, here comes one from our friend Dan Tobin. All poets have exemplars. Any explorers for your, uh, explorers for your prose. Exemplars for your prose, I guess. Um, People you've looked to, to, to guide you as a prose writer. Well, I did a PhD in literature, which means I read an awful lot of prose. And believe me, the British Victorians could certainly write prose. And I read Browning and I read um, I read Macaulay and I, I read all those prose writers. They're not good models, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I read a lot of prose. I always read a lot of prose. And I think I read uh, probably 25 memoirs before I ever wrote one myself. I have them I have them sitting on the shelf and I could, you know, go over there and look at them and tell you the names of the people I was reading. But they're the kind of um, names that you would imagine. They're mostly American writers who were writing memoirs in the last 20 years. Um, I was interested in how to put a memoir together. So I think probably I some of that rubbed off on me. But then I've written an awful lot of papers, including scholarly papers, you know, which requires a whole different voice. Mm. Um, you have to pretend like you're wise <laughs> and you're <laughs> interested in scholarship and things like that. And I, I just, I did write a lot of papers like that and I got tired of it. You just need to find a voice to tell the memoir in. And um, so I think the voice in this is approximately the same in each one of the essays very much so very much so well Jeannie, thank you so so very very much it, this has been a wonderful moment i hope the folks here will um just bear with me for a moment to cover a little bit of housekeeping um i want to let you know that leaping from the burning train is available for purchase and cloth bound paperback and ebook editions through all the major online retailers. If you go to the book's webpage at slantbooks.org, you can find links to several of those outlets, including one that many of us favor, bookshop.org, um, an organization that gives back to independent bookstores across the country. I will post the link in the chat before signing off uh, once again. The best way to keep up with our new and recent releases is to visit our website and sign up for Slantwise, our occasional e-newsletter. Just go right to the bottom of any web page and you'll find where you can subscribe to Slantwise. You can also follow us on social media. Please also check out our blog, Close Reading, for illuminating posts on the intersection between literature, imagination, and the formation of mind and heart. Next month, we will publish Kinderzainen by Yaroslav Marek Rimkiewicz, a book about events that took place 80 years ago, but which sadly remains all too relevant to the present moment. Here's a taste of the jacket copy. An old man, poet, playwright, essayist, and scholar, a group of talents, by the way, just like genies, sifts through the broken fragments of his memory as he recounts what it was like to grow up in Warsaw during the German occupation of World War II. The result is Kinderzainen, a searing and controversial memoir by a major post-war Polish writer that has evoked both debate and praise, now translated into English for the first time. The book's title comes, of course, from the suite of piano pieces by Robert Schumann, which evoke the innocence and joy of childhood, thus providing a wrenching counterpoint to the violence, destruction, and madness that characterized Rimkiewicz's coming of age. 
While the scenes of his youth are depicted in vivid detail, from his boyish encounters with cats, horses, and turtles, up to the shocking brutality of murder and mayhem witnessed at first hand, what really sets Kinderzainen apart is this extended meditation on the nature of war, oppression, and fanatical nationalism, and the possibility, however doomed it may seem, of human resistance to those forces. Here is an enduring testimony that remains starkly relevant to our own time. Tonight's event has been recorded and will soon be available on the Slant book page, our YouTube channel, and of course, through Slantcast. You can now subscribe to Slantcast through all the major podcast outlets, including Spotify, Apple, Audible, and many others. Please remember that none of this would be possible without your tax-deductible donations. You ensure that books like Leaping from the Burning Train can be published and reach a world of readers hungry for literary craft and enduring themes, books that do research into the human. To support our work, just go to slantbooks.org and click on Donate. Finally, remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time.